it is safe to say that my guest on this episode of the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast is fanatical about globes. Peter Bellaby started Bellaby & Co, the artisan globe makers based in London in 2008. The company has its roots in his search for a globe for his father's 80th birthday. Fortunate for us, he was unhappy with everything he found on the market, so he set out to make one himself. And more than a decade later, Peter employs a team of 20 that include cartographers, illustrators, engravers, woodworkers, painters, and makers. His journey is inspiring and one that epitomizes the drive to preserve dying craft and craftsmanship. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for um, having me on. I wanted to first start, as I always do with the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast, I wanted to start by asking you about you. Um, describe what it is you do for um, for work. Um, I'm very lucky. I can do something that that could be a wonderful hobby. is is kind of a passion of mine, and um, it's making globes. I'm a bespoke globe maker, and I have a an amazing team of twenty five people who help me do that. So we have a studio in North London, and we create everything um, here from scratch. Uh, it's a really amazing, wonderful, artistic environment. And what drew you to making globes? So I've had a really um, varied career. I think I have a quite a low boredom threshold. And throughout my career, I've changed, stopped uh, um, jobs. Um, I was lucky enough one time even to be made redundant, um, which actually was probably the best thing that ever happened. I've always had different careers. I've changed careers at a moment's notice. And I just was at a, a bit of a point in my life where I'd come back from traveling and I was going to get involved, um, re-involve myself in property developing, which I'd done a little bit of in the early 2000s um, and reasonably well. I'd kind of, um, I'd, I have a real, really bad problem in that I can't buy low quality anything. I literally, from, I, I don't know from what age, um, but I remember when I played tennis when I was a teenager, I always wanted the best racket that you could possibly have. I didn't want the, the cheap one. And so I, when I did develop property, um, rather than, um, I, I obviously had a limited budget to where I could buy the property and that was Stoke Newington, but I put my all into turning those properties into amazing houses. And I uh, created, I, I raised the bar on one particular street by about 15% in, in terms of the value of the properties by um, insisting on having really high quality things. So I kind of went from that um, and came, oh, well, I came back from traveling and this was 2008. And there was a little bit of a crisis going on in 2008. Um, and I didn't think property developing was such a good idea, but I didn't have a clue what I was going to do. And at the same time, I had my dad's 80th birthday um, on the horizon. And so it sort of um, was just something I thought, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy him something good for his birthday. And I thought I'd buy a globe. And then I started my search for Globe and it was just the most ridiculous thing. I, I spent months looking for something that was um, any good. There was nothing I could find. I went to 
obviously just to regular maps stores, Stanford's and Covent Garden. And they had some, some great um, functional globes, practical globes, but not aesthetic globes. And I went to auction houses and they had beautiful globes, but tens of thousands of pounds, obviously many years out of date, um, which can be a, a beautiful thing, but it just seemed a little bit pointless spending that much money on something that was going to degrade even more quickly um, because it's you can't really use an old globe. They they probably the the biggest thing with them is the age um, factor uh, means they're just constantly degrading. Every time you touch them, another piece falls off. So it kind of just made me think. Okay, well, there's nothing there. I've got a few months spare because obviously it wouldn't take that long. Um, why don't I make him my dad a globe for his birthday? And so I set off on my journey to make a globe. Wow. I mean, I, it's interesting, cause you, you, th this idea of um, always wanting the best thing, and then kind of that, th it seems like there's a, this natural progression from wanting that best thing to perfecting the globe. It actually takes me uh, to, talk, to talk about it in a program like this to actually recall from my past things I've done that really have sort of made me realize that actually that is my what I love I love amazing design I love um, individuality I, I love bespoke items um, I mean my the cars I've had in my life um, literally scream out to um, low numbers and um, even though I, I couldn't have <laughs> I've never been able to afford them but I always um, I, I always want to have um, incredibly well designed and the best the best version of anything. When I bought my first house, it was a um, like a two bed flat in Tufnell Park, and I moved in with four saucepans, um, a bed, and I, I think a, a futon. Not the, not the actual base for the futon, just the futon. That was our, my sofa. Um, and then the first thing I bought was a sofa, and it was the the best one I could possibly afford. It was way too big for the house. It had to be um, in sections to get it into the house. But I bought it knowing that I would still have that in 20 years time um, because I knew it would move up with me in other houses. I didn't see the point in buying, with the greatest of respect to flat pack furniture, a piece of flat pack furniture to um, sit in my house, knowing that I was going to get rid of it in two years' time. And um, funny enough, that's, that sofa um, <laughs> is still around. So it's kind of, um, I think it's really important. I, I don't, um, I think uh, we can all do it um, from an early age. We don't have to settle for buying rubbish. I prefer to not have something than to have a bad thing. It's like going out for 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 dinner to a restaurant i don't want to go out to 10 restaurants for bog standard average food i'd much prefer to go out to one restaurant irregularly that provides me with amazing food i wanted to ask you what the most exciting thing is about your job because well it doesn't sound like a job the most exciting thing about what you know what you do i think the best thing about this is something new is happening every single week 
this isn't coming in and making um, the same thing over and over again. We have people constantly wanting new um, designs for things. So we're at any one stage, we have crazy numbers of um, bespoke designs happening that are not um, usually on our website. They might get there in a year or two, but they're not there to begin with. And we have we have random events. We have filmings going on here. We have, uh, at the moment, I had someone in yesterday, a travel company who are coming in here and they're bringing in some people. They're doing kind of a tour of London. It's a, it's a very bespoke travel company. They are going to um, go to... Um, an archaeological site in the city and be taken there that's not normally open to the public. They're going to do some uh, graffiti spray painting um, in Shoreditch. Um, and then they're coming here and I'm going to give them a little talk about globe making. Um, and then luckily enough, we we have a bar which we, we put in just before lockdown. We put in the Christmas before lockdown it never got taken out and it's still here. So they're then going to have a, a few drinks afterwards. There's always something different going on. I, I'm not coming in day to day and and just um, facilitating a team of people making globes. There's just so many uh, fun, interesting things happening. You, you mentioned design and this um, appreciation of good design. How do you think design's changed over the past five years, and especially within your industry? We have, since the beginning, we've changed how we make globes. When I started out, I was using Glass of Paris because that was the most easily accessible, and I felt the most traditional material. I realized pretty quickly that uh, it's not the most long-living material to use it, it might it will last a long time but it wouldn't last as long as modern composites and so we our, our design of both our globes and all our stands and bases has become more and more high-end i suppose or more fastidious i don't know but it's just more precise than the whole way we're doing things like the, the people who make our metal bases at the moment in in the kind of off season they make engine parts for formula one cars so the the, the precision has to be incredible and we had we had a recent base which we're making which is really really weird amalgam of um we have a blacksmith who made um four arms which are attached to a ring which then fits into a machined brass metal piece and because the blacksmith is not able to have the arms perfectly coming out at, at 90 degrees. Some of them are sort of, one's at sort of 87 degrees um, and an, another one's at a slight angle. The machinist has had to allow for that in his machining piece that goes underneath it. And it's, uh, it's so unusual to find um, a product where, where you're able to, or to find craftsmen who are, are willing to say, hey, that's um, beautiful, but it's because it's handmade, it's not completely perfect, but I need to, my piece that goes with it needs to be perfect, and I'm going to spend the time to do that. There are not many companies out there who will um, take in your design and then 
create it um, totally one-off. And that, that, I think, is the most interesting thing that we do is every single customer that we deal with um, has a bespoke design. Their globe will be totally individual to them. And in, in many cases, and more and more, their base will be totally individual. We, we have people sending us a photo of a globe from 200 years ago and say, can you recreate that, please? And that is so much fun. But you, you just don't um, get that these days in too many industries. In, in, in many industries or many companies that would consider themselves luxury companies, they're just producing a lot of something that's expensive. That for me is not luxury. That's just expensive. Luxury is um, a, a whole process of being involved with how something is being made. You can be as involved or, or not as you wish, but um, it's having a bespoke item that um, becomes something that only you could own. Only, it's only relevant to you. And that, for me, um, is the ultimate luxury. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. You know, you think about all this stuff in the world that we are sold and we're sold under the guise that it is luxury. I mean, there's such a difference between what you do, and that's why I was drawn to, to chatting to you. There's such a difference um, in what you do to this global um, luxury brand market, which is churning out, you know, multiples of stuff. To go back to, the, to that point, I think, I think luxury and volume just don't work together. They're not. There are many people who are luxury, who think they're luxury and have huge volume. Um, but it's how you're perceived by other people. And you cannot possibly churn out hundreds of thousands of a product and be seen as luxury. You can definitely be expensive. The, th the thing about luxury and the thing about bespoke products is, is everyone's trying to get on the bandwagon at the moment. You can, you can buy a Ford that is handcrafted in Romford. Come on. I mean, it's, um, there, aren't, there are no cars that are handcrafted any longer. There are some that are made in a lot, uh, with a lot of um, people involved in making them, but there are no really handcrafted cars that come out of a manufacturer. But it is really important, though, that luxury also cannot be produced in a factory. It cannot be produced by minimum wage. That is not luxury. You can't... You can't um, get people to buy something that's produced by people struggling to get by and say, this is a luxury product. It doesn't work. What inspires you? It's a difficult one, really. I, I think in the sense of the world I'm in, in, in what I do, I think things that inspire me are amazing design um, because I'm so jealous that people can design. I, I cannot, I'm useless at designing. I'm useless at drawing. I find it... Um, I find it really difficult and good design is is just fantastic. Um, I have a few amazingly designed pieces that I've either owned or have and I look at them every day and it kind of brings a smile to my face. Pretty much the first car I bought myself was a DB6. I'd never I'd never really owned a car and I'd just been made redundant from ITV and and this was before um before it was illegal to um, talk and drive on, on mobile. So I was 
on my way up to Stansted um, to try and buy this DB6. And I, I actually bought it on my phone uh, and then didn't bother going to the auction house, continued on my holiday up to Scotland. But um, yeah, that that was amazing. There, it's such wonderful lines um, in that car. Uh, and I also, um, I also now have a really beaten up um, 1961 Bentley, um, which just also is beautiful. It, it's, it's so beaten up. Um, it spent five decades in the Californian desert before being imported. Um, and it's the paintwork's all gone. The leather has all gone, the woodwork's all gone, but luckily the engine and the chassis are all fine. So uh, I, I actually drive that every day. And um, that definitely brings a smile to my face, along with many, many people on the street. You have cartographers and you've got, um, um, I, I'm guessing you've got painters and designers and illustrators. There must be woodworkers because of the, the bases. How is a globe now made? There, how long have you got? Um, there are many different elements of a globe. So to begin with, there is the sphere that you then have to cover with paper. Now you can have three types of globe. You can have a printed globe, um, you can have a manuscript globe, or you can just have a painted sphere, um, which kind of, um, so the easy globes are, give someone a, a sphere, a blank sphere and paint on the world. Very, 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 very difficult to get accurate. Uh, because you can just imagine how do you possibly do that? It just seems crazy. And and likewise with a manuscript globe, which involves applying paper to a sphere and then applying the map afterwards. Again, you can you can obviously break up um, the sphere. You can um, into the latitudes and longitudes, so you can put those on first. But but even putting those on accurately is painfully difficult i can't again it's it's so difficult to do so the most accurate and the the highest level of globe making is um a printed globe that we do which is you print the whole map onto the uh, onto paper and then you apply that in sections all around to make the globe so that's that's the, the sphere and the globe and obviously that has to be painted and, and protected and then um, the other elements, there might be a meridian involved, there might be a wooden or metal table involved. Um, we sit quite a few of our globes on roller bearings so they can be spun in any direction. So that's another element that's involved. But, and obviously through that whole process, if I kind of go through our, our line of um, how they're made, we have the cartographer at the beginning who is doing all the, the map work, um, liaising with the customer. Uh, we then have the maker and the painter who liaise together making the spherical element. And then we have a team in the workshop making all the um, wooden and metal elements. And we also have um, contractors helping us because obviously machining metal is, um, is a step too far in, in my learning curve. So we have people to help us do that. And we also have an amazing engraver who does all our engraving by hand. So yeah, there's a, there are a lot of processes. 
And are all of your, um, I mean, do you call them craftsmen or are they artisans? I mean, I, I call them the team. Okay. You can call them whatever you want. I, I kind of, um, they're incredible um, craftsmen and artisans. They're, they're making, applying the piece of map to a sphere. We have the six best people um, on the planet in this building. They, they really uh, have taken it to such a high level. I, um, I, I just, I'm in awe of the ability of everyone. Obviously, I made globes from 2008 and I kind of um, took a step back. I still helped with the larger globes, but I took a step back a few years ago to, to run the company. Uh, but the, the level that they go to and the, the, as I said earlier, we have, we have quite a lot of people coming into the, the studio to, to take photographs, to, to do whatever. And they're always struck by how quiet the studio is. Everyone is so focused and so um, concentrating on, on what they're doing, concentrated on, on what they're doing, that it's, um, it, it's such a pleasure to see them do that. And everyone is, everyone's always struck how, what a wonderful environment. You, I suppose they're thinking, oh, it's an art studio, it must be crazy, there must be music blaring out. It's not that at all. Everyone's so in their zone because what they're doing has to be done um, so exactly. Yeah. Um, I've read about gauze. <laughs> yeah. So that's uh, well. Firstly, are the um, are they digitally printed um, the maps, or are they screen printed? Or they are. We have wide format printers. So when I, that's one of the lucky um, things, I suppose, in the setting up of this company. Um, is the fact that printing was going like this. It was, it was on an upward trajectory. When I started in 2008, I was going around to lithographic print um, um, shops to see whether I could, um, and lithographic um, obviously is the four color printing where you're the same sheet of paper is going through the printer four times. And, uh, I guess I was just so lucky that printing had advanced and, and by 2010, when I actually was was really getting there, um, uh, wide format printing had, had, is equal now, I suppose, to, um, to lithographic printing. So there's no, um, there's no issue with the inks. Pre previously, obviously, uh, most of the, printing that you do on a, a printer at home and you you print your beautiful photograph from your holiday and then you put it on the wall and two years later you're trying to work out whereabouts that was because the the color has all gone um the new wide format printers are the inks are guaranteed um for a hundred years or more they're they're incredible and and we do tests we we've done full color printing and put it put them outside for a year um, in, in, in rain and or behind, um, protected from water, but not really, not really protected from um, the, the vagaries of the weather and, and the dampness that can potentially get into it. And um, the ink just doesn't lose color. It's incredible. So that, that's one of the, the 
things that had that not happened, I don't think I would be in this position. I wouldn't be in this position. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So you've got kind of these this this traditional idea of making a globe, um, but uh, having adopted the new technologies, so the digital yes, printing. Yes, absolutely. Which, yeah, yeah, and that's, I mean, that's. Um, I mean, it's amazing how these things work together. You know, you're talking about the blacksmith and you're talking about the woodworkers, but, you know, bringing the technology um, and traditional craft together is, um, it's it's uh, it's a sign of the times, isn't it? How things change. Uh, it, it really is. There's no, we obviously use traditional techniques and traditional ideas, but, but why why should we use traditional materials? That there's no point. Humanity has to advance um, in the way it does things. Um, you you don't need to be fixated by um, by doing things uh, by um, by using old materials if there's a new modern one um, better. I was just suddenly thinking about one of my neighbours who um, I live in a house in a Georgian street where all the houses were built in the 1720s. And, and one of our neighbours um, recently got an indoor lavatory. Uh, another one, I think, had a bath in his house until a few years ago when he started a family and they realised they had to have a shower. But um, but no, it's quite... Um, you don't need to be fixated in the past. No, I would never expect someone in 200 years time to be doing something the way I'm doing it. I'd love them to be inspired maybe, but I, I don't want them to be using our materials because in 200 years time, everything will, well, be 3D printed, I suppose. But um, Do you use 3D printing? No, no. We just haven't got there yet. Um, it's, it's not really what we do, but we might we might use it for something if it if it does the job, but we would never use it in the in the making of the actual globe itself it's just that's pointless that is our our usp i suppose is the fact that our um the making of the globe and the painting of the globe is all done by hand but we i could see that we might use it for creating some base designs because there are some base designs we have at the moment which are um physically impossible um we have people asking for very random things uh, and so, um, or at least they're, they're impossible within the realms of of who, what we can do and what our current suppliers can do. And I, I don't want to take on a project and say, yes, I can do this, but it will cost you six figures because I don't have the, the right supplier at the moment or the right um, ability or, or technology to do it. So with the globes, um, I'm, I'm just thinking about the actual map. So is the map printed in black and white and then it's hand-coloured? Is that yes. how it works? So, I mean, they're black and white and um, strong strong colours, strong um, blues and greens and browns and reds, but, but all in outline. So there's no, um, we don't put shading across um, the map it's all all that color is added um, by the painters so it will take um, painter anything between a day and a half and eight weeks to paint one globe uh, depending on whether it's 
small or enormous um, because the the technique they use is is just a long slow technique they have to um, we want to have a wonderful shade um, that comes from um, the coastline and that just they have to do it in inch segments all around the world this whole world of globe making um, is is fascinating to me um just because it's something that you just don't typically come across i mean and are there only two globe makers like your company company in the world there so there are um there are a few commercial makers who obviously make the, the plastic ones but there's there's no one realistically who's doing what we're doing who's doing everything bespoke there are a few um one-man bands and companies with two or three people who are um trying to um or, or who are making loads but not um not really uh, obsessively i think um and and i think um it's something that if you're not obsessed about quality it's very easy to um to to have a, a bad product the for instance in in the whole movie um it's amazing in movies that there is a globe in every other movie you will now see a globe and now i've told you that every time you're watching a movie you'll be like globe um which i literally i still do after um, a dozen years but um but uh, they they rely on the fact that filming uses soft focus uses nighttime but many of these globes have been made by people just kind of putting things together and, and they work if they're in the distance but um to be obsessive about quality there's no there's no one close to us um at all and no one who will do a bespoke globe that will involve um aspects of your personality your life in in that globe um just there's no one doing that the painting is one thing so you need a very steady hand and you need obviously to be very skilled at that laying the map on the sphere is i mean that's that's the the really difficult thing that's the thing that takes our trainees i guess up to a year to learn how to make a small globe um before they even start doing the larger ones but um it's a really really long process just because it's so uh, you're dealing with wet paper stretching wet paper um flat wet paper over a sphere it's it's just you're asking it to do all the things it doesn't want to do and so you just have to get to you have to get to know this medium you're using incredibly well and it's just a case of practicing over and over and over and over again and it, it's a really frustrating thing to learn because you will you'll start to do it and within a few weeks you'll think wow that's i'm really impressed with that and and we're all looking at at how good people are after a few weeks and we're hiding the fact from them that they're going to be um not that much better after 6 months because it it just is training your hands to understand this material this this weak paper and you can get to a reasonable level relatively quickly but to get to an amazing level you just have to you just have to try and fail 
hundreds and hundreds of times. Um, and by the end, by the end of a year, um, the, um, the quality that we are um, producing is incredible. I mean, that's I mean, skill. Nothing comes to those who don't practice. Absolutely. It's, um, it's, it's so important. We, we, everyone wants instant gratification these days that there is something to um, taking your time about things. I think it's important not to want immediacy with everything. And that, that's the thing, but we're, we're kind of lucky because um, we, we do have some globes that we sell the same day, um, but they, um, they do tend to um, sell very quickly. But on the whole, people will wait three months to a year for their globe to be delivered. And I think uh, that's, it's important that people realize that to get a good product, they might have to wait. Yeah. Uh, well, I suppose it's like, you know, it's if you go to a tailor, you know, your suit's not going to be, you're not going to pick your suit up in a day. Yeah, absolutely. You recognize there's a skill involved and that there are elements that, that, that take time. I suppose now that you've got the digital printing, you can change the everything. everything. That's why I love when customers come in here um, and I, I remind them, this is a printed globe. You, We are going to print your personal globe ourselves for your own globe. You can put on there what you want to put on there. There's a limit to what will allow you to take off, but you can put on um, illustrations. The one thing that really strikes me with what we're doing is the fact that people really are commissioning something from us and we are working with them over a duration to produce the end result. I think we get such a rapport with our customers over uh, over time sometimes. We, we've had customers working on Globes for four years. You mentioned earlier the workshop being very, very quiet. Just describe what the workshop is. I have these visions of um, kind of Globes hanging from the ceiling, drying. and So we have, I guess, a 1950s post-war A-frame building with, I guess, a 35-foot um, reach to the, the, the top of the building, and we have a, a floor in the middle. Um, on that floor, which has amazing light either end, windows that are 15 feet high, uh, that's where all the, the artwork and the making takes place. And... I guess we we have elements of of all the goats being made. Yes, there are things hanging around drying. There are um, there are obviously lots of globes up there, and I've kind of populated it with quite a few plants. So there's quite a lot of um, plant activity up there, um, and there's there's obviously um, a team of the team of cartographers working up there on computers. We we obviously have uh, a bank of computers so that we can do do the role that's one thing that really has changed from the beginning where over the course of year a year i'd have 20 customers and i'd keep everything in my head now obviously we have a few more than that so we 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 um have plenty of um, computer processing power but it's um it's such a serene place it's it's kind of got um persian carpets on the floor um and it's just a, a very serene place to to work and to be. 
And obviously downstairs where all the woodwork is done, luckily it's kind of a slightly separate building. There's a thick wall between it and the main area. So that's where all the, the noisy woodwork and metalwork takes place. You know, you think about craftsmen. I mean, the environment in which you work as a craftsman is is really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's um, and that's important for us as well that um, that that is the case because I can't afford to for people to train here um, and then leave after a year. We we obviously want people to stay here for a long time. And how would you define craftsmanship? I suppose craftsmanship is is a, is about this the training involved in something and the ability that's in, involved in something, but also um, whether whether it's something that any Tom, Dick, or Harry could do. I mean, we with globe making, only one in two of our makers actually get to the end of the the training um, process because. They're not. They don't have the skills. So it's, it's, um, yeah. I, I think it's it's something, and that's why, that's why I'm always so blown away with what we do here because it is such an amazing skill. But it's also something that I'm lucky enough to have a group of people who um, we've we've got to that end stage who could do it because I could, I could have employed people and just no one can, no one can quite get to the the level of quality that we want yeah. so I, I i definitely think craftsmanship should you should be in awe of craftsmanship you can't um something that that you know is just computer made or machine made is not craftsmanship it's something that involves um humanity but it but it also involves um a love for what you're doing you can you can have the most amazing product made, but if someone hasn't loved what they're doing, if they're not deriving enjoyment out of making it, then it means nothing. Yeah. So. I often ask um, the question uh, to people that I, I chat to um, related to craftsmanship and whether or not they can tell the hand of their craftsman in the product that they produce. Do you think that the the individual craftsman? Yeah, mm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We um, certainly with the makers. Uh, I was actually having this discussion yesterday with the makers. We know who's made everything without shadow of doubt. You can tell so and so has made that, so and so has made that. With the painters, less so. Uh, to to an extent, um, you can, but when and, and that. Obviously, when we are painting a globe, we are painting it to a a way that we have become accustomed to. So people people develop their own techniques, but there's a limit to how much they can develop their own techniques because we're kind of saying this is how we want it. This is how the customer wants it to look. Um, but you can um, they they do have their different techniques, but it's. It's slightly more difficult to to tell them mm. um, apart. I wonder if they do a little sneaky line somewhere on the beach somewhere. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. I um, <laughs> I, I uh, be very easy for um, our cartographers to do to do little things, and I just wouldn't know. But um, we, we 
we do have to check and recheck things constantly but um no it'd be um that's the beauty of what we're doing it's it's every single product we make is unique there isn't one that looks like another because the way we allow the the paints to dry is um completely naturally so we we couldn't recreate um to the same if we tried and i think that that for me is um one of the lucky things we have in what we do is the fact that um no two products we make will ever be the same luxury should have certain things to it that are it, it definitely should be small scale operations you you just cannot have large luxury it just does not work we shouldn't allow big companies to pretend they're luxury companies um luxury is small scale um luxury is individuality um it's amazing provenance it's not about making a billion pounds that's that's high cost goods but it's not luxury you shouldn't be able to use the word bespoke to make something that is not bespoke you shouldn't be able to use handcrafted you shouldn't be able to use luxury unless it is one of those things and it's so um it's so wrong that all these all these companies in their advertising spiels are are just um brutalizing the english english language to sell their their rubbish products the conversation about craftsmanship i think is a really valid one and i think it's one um as i said especially in relation to the types of work you do um roger smith you know the watchmaker though you know though um catherine sergeant the tailor i mean the things that you do um is so specialized um and i think that what has happened in in the world um probably over the past 20 30 years is that we've lost often there are so few real craftsmen um in the world today and it's really important to pre- to preserve the craft and i think yours more than many others because there's so few of you i th- i think for me for the company i'm i want to get us to a sustainable level uh, that can be driven by making sure we have an amazing product um and and i suppose making sure we um we sell enough by word of mouth now we we do supply some um stores like Lindley and Harrods um but on the whole we sell most of our globes directly so i kind of need us to get to a level which is a little bit bigger than we are i think whereby that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy and, and we will just keep on getting enough orders by virtue of being known well enough because we don't advertise at all for me it's important that i build up the company to a certain level so that it does it makes we're well enough known that sales will just continue to come in and it's uh it's obviously <clears throat> we don't make that many products and and someone like Roger Smith may <laughs> makes so few products it's, it's how do you um he probably has a 
a wait list for several years, but that might only be half a dozen people. I don't know. I don't. They, they don't make that many, I guess. But it's um, yeah. You 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 need to have. We need to have enough people who know about us and enough globes and enough houses that we are creating our own market by by those being our advertising. Globes aren't your typical um, thing you'd have in your house anymore. No, but they... Well, I probably actually would argue with that. I think um, as a child, many, many people have globes. Oh, I used to have one, yeah. Yeah, bespoke globes. Yes, you're right. But that's um, that's just because it's... Um, um, a more individual piece that is created for someone, but they might still have um, many. I mean, thousands of the, the kind of plastic school globes are sold every year. Millions are sold every year. They're made in every language. Uh, millions are sold every year. So people do have them, but it's such a wonderful thing to have in um, in your house. But you're not really going to have the kind of fifteen pound plastic globe sitting atop your um, your be- beautiful antique or modern um, unit on the side. You might prefer to have a a more bespoke, bespoke handmade variety, and that's that's where we come in. But it's um, I I think there definitely was a lull over the last century in bespoke handcrafted globe making, but I don't think there was a drop in. Um, just regular globes, I think. They're, it's the most fascinating thing any child can see. When you go to school, you've got this thing and you're, it's explained to you. I don't, I don't even know how the process works. I don't know when the first time you see a globe and and that that is the first conversation you have is, is with your geography teacher about where you exist on the planet. I don't know whether it's your parents doing that or... or it comes from school but it must I can't imagine what it must be like because I can't remember as a four-year-old suddenly seeing this thing and thinking you're on this world but it's enormous but you just can't you can't understand it they are there's such an there's such an important thing for us to understand our world what we are it's it's obviously the the only representation of the world um, that is real, um, and I think because it is that, um, because it's a miniature version, it kind of um, allow it. It can allow you to get into deep thought and and really analyze um, the world and the world around us. Because I've got a huge wall map in front of me here, which is a beautiful 1950s one that someone's thrown by the looks of it, tons of tea at to um to patinate it maybe it's only a couple of years old but um but it doesn't give you the the sense that a globe gives you and and because we do so much kind of traveling um these days not so much lastly but ordinarily it's it allows you to to realize how the positions of countries on the world which you just don't get from a flat map you Flat map, you think getting from A to B, getting from the left-hand side of the map um, to the right-hand side of the map, you just go all the way along the equator. And obviously, that's you just go around the sides, off off each side of the map. 
and it, it kind of um, a globe is the only thing uh, recreation of the globe is the only thing that will allow you to understand that and understand why planes fly over the poles the thing for me is that flat maps are projections they are distortions um, they will distort land masses to to allow for them to be used for what their creator wanted them to be useful so that they're, they're inaccurate by definition just thinking about um, what you've been saying about luxury and luxury brands and you know people consuming loads of loads of product as do you think that encouraging consumption creates um, creates a wasteful mentality in people? I think encouraging mass consumption, yes. I, I think people people should be allowed to buy things without feeling guilty. I, th I think we have to be careful that um, we don't want to go back to subsistence living. We don't want to go back to the fact that if there was a bad crop, half the population would die the following year. We don't want or need to go back to that. But we don't need to have a um, situation where you just buy tons of rubbish and fill your house with, with cheap um, um, manufactured goods. And we've been compliant in allowing um, China, essentially, to, to become the manufacturing um country of the world and it's um it's crazy people people should for, for my um people shouldn't do anything people could um do be much more uh, or be advised to to be more circumspect about what they buy and and why they're buying something and um understand that they will get so much more enjoyment out of having fewer better made items than tons of things that in 10 years time, they, they won't have any of them. I think it's so, um, it's so wonderful having, buying a product that you keep for years and years and years. You kind of, it feels very much you. I mean, you can see from my jumper, it's got like, it's darned, darns everywhere. Who darns things? I mean, I don't, I actually gave it i'm actually hoodwink one of my team into doing it for me but she's she's done my jumper it's people don't do that anymore they throw them away when they get holes in i think it's um and it's important to make things well and make things that last and make things last don't um don't look to just instant gratification for the latest gadget the latest thing um it's We've got to be really careful. We are, um, I, I'm lucky to do a bit of traveling and every, every time you go away, you you find that, because it's obviously quite nice shopping when you're um, traveling. Finding individual things from each country now is really difficult. You might as well just all go to, um, to factories in China and just say, I went to Italy this year and this is what I brought back because it's all made there. Um, I've just come back from Croatia. Where I managed to find a wonderful um, kind of five-pint um, beer mug made like um, an oak barrel. Made So it tapers in at the top, but it holds, it's got a wonderful handle. It's made by this 90-year-old guy in the middle of Croatia, in the middle of the, some forest in Croatia, um, but it holds five pints of beer. Um, and... Um, it's it's fantastic, but but just finding finding individual things is so difficult. 
finding um, finding things that, and that's why it's, it's difficult for people because um, we can only buy what's put in front of us. So therefore, we need organizations to encourage luxury, to encourage craftsmanship, to encourage small scale um, craftsmanship. Um, and and to allow it to flourish. So how do you then think we change people's wasteful behavior? We just need to encourage people that um, well-made um, European product is fantastic. Um, and you will, if you know who's made um, a piece of furniture in your house, how much better is that than a, a piece that's, you don't know where it's been made? Thinking about luxury, how would you define luxury? I think luxury, um, for me, is exclusivity is important in terms of rarity. Not um, It must be inclusive, but it, it must be rare. Um, it must have individuality uh, to it. The, the design must have levels of bespoke um, detail um, in it. Um, and it must have great provenance it must be created and made with love um, with people doing something that they want to be doing being paid well to do what they're doing um, and um, being done in a sustainable um, and um, ecological way i think it's um you kind of um there are so many more things that manufacturers have to think about these days in, in creating anything. But, but for me, um, the most important thing in luxury is just small volume. Uh, what is your luxury? My luxury? Um, it's partly to do with my lifestyle. I don't have, I don't have children. That, uh, no, let's just leave it at that. I don't have children. That's my luxury. You can understand that allows me to have ultimate flexibility. If I want to go on holiday tomorrow, um, it's being, I suppose, my luxury is being the master of my own destiny. So I don't have, um, and it's perhaps very selfish, but um, I don't have children. I have a partner. Um, I have a company that runs itself. And I'm lucky enough to be able to do what I want when I want. And that, that, um, we're only on this planet once. You have to really make the most of it. And that allows me to make, um, in my way, the most of it. Obviously, everyone has their um, their own idea of what they want to make out of time. And, and <laughs> I'm sure for many people, having six children is great, but not for me. Peter Bellaby, thank you so much for joining us on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Peter, thank you for joining us. And thank you to Intellect Books, our partner, to you for listening, and join us next time on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. <laughs>